You're listening to Jesus is Everything, the teaching ministry of The Way, Eugene. But 1 Corinthians chapter 12 is we're going to find ourselves, and we're going to begin in verse uh, 27. So let me read this uh, couple of verses that we're going to be talking about and using as our jumping off point, and then give you a little bit of background as to where we've come from to land at this point. And then we'll move forward from there. So Paul, again, teaching the Corinthians, this church that it was very worldly in the sense that they were very modern. They were very, uh, you know, metropolitan, big city, a lot of contact with the unsaved world, the pagan world, a lot of influence from the pagan world coming into the church, um, a lot of justification of sin coming into the church, and Paul having to spend the majority of his letter correcting those things But then again, like we've pivoted several times from from chapter 9 and then chapter 11, we're sort of pivoting in this direction of Paul going, now, you are the church, you are the body of Christ. Here's how that's supposed to look. Here's what you're supposed to be representing in the world around you. And so here he says in 1 Corinthians 12, verse 27, now, you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. And God has appointed in the church, first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers, then miracles, then gifts of healing, helping, administrating, and various kinds of tongues. And then in verse 29, he asks these rhetorical questions, these questions that don't really need an answer, but he lays them out there as a teaching tool. He says, are all apostles... Are all prophets? Are all teachers? Do all work miracles? Do all possess gifts of healing? Do all speak with tongues? Do all interpret? And he asked those rhetorical questions because the answer is obviously no, not everybody does everything in the church. And then he says in verse 31, but earnestly desire the higher gifts and I will show you a still more excellent way. Now, where we've come and what we'll cover on Wednesday night is what Paul talks about in regard to gifts of the Holy Spirit. We learned a couple weeks ago that uh, in regard to gifts in the church and how the church functions, it comes from a Trinitarian authority, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Each, being God, give gifts of different kind. For instance, God the Father has given us the gift of life. He's the creator. He's our father. He he created us out of nothing, right? And he made us in his image, just like how I have a son and and he's created in my image, right? There's times when people look at him and go, oh, you really look like your dad, right? That's the idea of God creating us as a father. Jesus has given us the gift of salvation. The separation that is between us and God, he being holy, us being sinful, Jesus has provided by his death and resurrection a way for us to be reconnected back to God. That's the gift of salvation, okay? And then God the Holy Spirit, what Paul talks about in the beginning of chapter 12 here, are these gifts that the Holy Spirit gives to the church, individual members of the church. He gives these gifts so that the church can encourage one another, build one another up, And the issue here, and what we'll study Wednesday night again, is that in Corinth, it would appear that these gifts were prominent. 
that they were a spiritually gifted church, that all of the gifts that Paul talks about were present in the church, but the point of correction for Paul to the church is, you guys are making too big of a deal about the gifts. They're important because they come from God, the Holy Spirit, but their purpose is for, he says, the common good. The purpose of a spiritual gifting isn't to say, hey, I've got this gift. Look at my gift. Let me put my gift on display in the church. Let me, let me show off with this gift that isn't mine, really. It's from God, the Holy Spirit. And Paul is correcting the church and going, all of these gifts that are present, they're good, they're right, they're necessary even for the life of the church, but we're not to be prideful about them. They're a gift, just like how we can't be prideful about someone giving us a Christmas gift or a birthday gift and go, oh, oh it's, it's, it's mine in the sense of I deserved it. A gift is a gift. It's out of the benevolence of the person giving it. The same is true in the Holy Spirit. And so Paul, as we'll look on Wednesday, I've said that already four times. I'll try not to repeat myself again. We'll, we'll see how Paul describes those gifts, the function of them, and how they're to be used in the church for the common good so that everybody benefits from them. And Paul will say some things that will perhaps surprise us a little bit in regard to who uses those gifts and how they get used and when they get used and how we're supposed to pay attention and honor those gifts. And so he has to spend that uh, beginning part of chapter 12 sort of, sort of laying out the understanding of these spiritual gifts but then he finishes up that idea of explaining how the gifts are used and when and, and in what purpose, all those things. And he got, gets to this point, like we read in verse 27. Now you are the body of Christ and individually members of it. We're individuals, but we're also one. Remember that Jesus Christ and his relationship to the church in Ephesians chapter 5 is, is compared to a marriage between a husband and a wife where, yes, you're individuals, you're two different people, but when you come together in marriage, now you're one. That's the purpose of marriage, is to be united in, in one flesh, God says. The church is the same thing. We're all individuals. We all have different personalities and talents, and the Lord gives us different gifts, all those kinds of things, but we're one, and we have one purpose. That is to glorify God and obey what he has taught us. And here's what Paul says in regard to all these gifts and all the amazing things that, that can happen when the Holy Spirit is working in someone's life. He says, God has, in verse 28, appointed in the church, and then he does this, he uses this little tool. He enumerates, he lists out, he goes one, two, three, and then lists a whole bunch of other things. He goes, God has appointed in the church first apostles, second prophets, and third teachers. Now, when God gifts someone in the church, every single person in the church is equal in value. Just like in a marriage, a husband and a wife, they're equal in value, although they may have different roles. They may have different jobs to fulfill in that relationship. The same thing is true in the church. We're all equal. There is nobody in the church who is more important or better than anyone else in the church. We're all dirty, rotten sinners. I think that's one piece that we need to be, preach constantly. The guy teaching the word, the people singing the songs, praying for each other, whatever the case might be, 
We're all dirty, rotten sinners, saved by the grace of God through Jesus Christ. Amen? Let's just get that out in the open. Let's just be honest about it. That's who we are. We all sin this week. Most of us probably sin this morning. Let's just be really clear about that. And we only are able to have hope and encouragement in our life because of Jesus' work on the cross, period, the end. All right? Now, the thing is, though, as Paul teaches here, because he spends the time enumerating these three roles or gifts that have been given to the church, apostles, prophets, and teachers, there seems to be a priority given to those gifts historically for the purpose of the growth of the church. Everybody in the church is equal. We're all valuable. But there are different roles within the church. And what it would seem is that Paul is saying that these three roles, by saying one, two, and three, that these have a priority over the other gifts that he doesn't enumerate. He doesn't add a number to them. He goes first, apostles, second, prophets, third, teachers. And then he lumps the rest of the gifts together. Miracles, gifts of healing, helping administration, various kinds of tongues, and then later on he talks about interpretation of those tongues, all that kind of thing. And verse 31 says, but earnestly desire the higher gifts. I propose to you that while every person in the church is valuable and important in the mission of Jesus Christ, that Paul is teaching that these giftings, apostleship, prophecy, and teaching are prioritized above the other giftings, not because they're more important necessarily, but because this is the way that the church grows. This is how the church expands. So what's an apostle? In the New Testament sense, an apostle is someone who has been sent from Jesus to establish the church and grow the church. Someone who has seen Jesus his 12 disciples, minus one, Judas. And then the apostle Paul is one who met Jesus on the road to, to Damascus there. And so Paul is and can lay claim to the title of being a true apostle. Now, in our day and age, there are no longer apostles in the same way that there were apostles in the New Testament because none of us have seen Jesus in person. We haven't met with Jesus and him give us the commission to go out and start a church. What we have today is what's called the spirit of apostleship. We still start churches. We still gather together and we expand the kingdom through the church. But there's a different kind of authority. In the New Testament sense of the word, these were people who met with Jesus and Jesus gave them those instructions. We now follow down that line, that lineage from the apostles and the rest of Christian history to say, we are continuing the church. We're not establishing the church. The church was established only once by Jesus with the apostles in that day and age. We continue to expand the church. So that's what the apostleship issue is. And that's why Paul puts it first. is because without the apostleship, the spirit of apostleship, the church doesn't grow. It stagnates. It dies. It stays in one place. And that's an issue for, for us in our day and age. We need church planters. We need people to say, I'm going to take what I've learned and I'm going to go out and continue building the church in other places. The second thing Paul says is prophets. Now, prophets, as we know, are those who speak the word of God. In a given moment, at a given time, God speaks to that person, and that person speaks out what God's word is. We see it in the Old Testament sense, where the prophets were speaking about the coming of Jesus. 
And we see it in the New Testament, the words of prophecy coming out of people, which gave us the actual text of this Bible that we hold in our hands. That's prophecy. Now, in our day and age, again, we don't have prophets in the same way. Nobody now has the ability to say, thus says the Lord, and then gives us new information. The canon of scripture is closed. There's no, if someone's saying, I have a word from the Lord, and they're trying to claim that it is authoritative in regard to what we're supposed to understand or know from the scriptures, that's a major red flag. Now, when someone uses that phrase, I have a word from the Lord, and it's simply something that is coming from the scripture being used to encourage us or remind us or teach us, that's the spirit of prophecy. That's where the Holy Spirit is pointing us back to the scripture, back to Jesus, and saying, here's what we're supposed to know right now. And so someone who has the gift of prophecy may walk up to you and go, hey, you know, brother, sister, whatever, like, man, I feel like the Lord's put it on my heart to remind you of this, to tell you this. And maybe it's a word from scripture, or maybe it's something that they're saying that matches up with scripture, not some new idea of, you know, like, like you know, pseudo-Christian cults claim words from the Lord, you know, so whether it's Joseph Smith or Mary Baker Eddy or whoever, you know, saying, I have a word from the Lord. The church is supposed to be in this city at this place at this time doing these crazy things that are different from the word of God. That's not true prophecy. And then thirdly, Paul says, teachers, we need people to explain the word of God as it's been entrusted to the church. That's a gifting that, that Paul says, hey, one, two, three, this is the way that the church is expanded. This is the way that the church grows. These enumerated gifts have a priority in the church over and above giftings that are still for the purpose of encouragement, still used to, to build up the church in faith. But the purpose of that we've been called to by Jesus is to go out and make disciples. So go out and expand his kingdom here on earth. And we do, do that through the spirit of apostleship, spirit of prophecy, and teaching the word of God. And so Paul is setting right for the church here the order of giftings, the priority of giftings, how it is that the church is supposed to grow and move, hope, move forward. And then he asks those rhetorical questions in verse 29 and 30, which are easily answered. No, not everybody in the church has all of the giftings. Not everybody does the same things. And, and uh, you know, as we look at this section of scripture, we start to understand why there's a need for multiple people. The church can't just be a cult of personality. It can't just be about one guy standing up in front of everybody and he has this charisma, he has this gifting of grace, he has this uh, winsomeness or attractiveness that draws people in to want to come and hear him. That's not accurate. If that's what the church is, is a cult of personality where it's focused on one person, man, there's a warning for us to go, where are the other gifts active? How are the other gifts being used? How are you as a part of the church coming and using what God has gifted you to encourage everyone else. We'll talk more about that next week. But here's what Paul says. He says in verse 31, earnestly desire the higher gifts. I propose that those higher gifts are the ones that he numerated, right? The ones that he said, uh, one, two, three, here's the order of the higher gifts, and then there's the rest of the gifts. Pursue those, desire those is what he says. So if you're gonna pray for a gift, 
and go, God, the Holy Spirit, I'd really love for you to gift this thing to me. Paul would say, ask for the higher gifts. Ask for the courage or the authority to be an apostle, to be sent out to go grow the church. Ask for, for the gift of prophecy that the Holy Spirit would put God's word on your heart to encourage someone else or, or to be a teacher to someone else, to disciple someone and show them and, and be an example to them of what it means to follow Jesus. Paul would say, desire those gifts. And then he says, and yet, and yet I will show you still a more excellent way. So Paul's saying that here's all these gifts. They're good. They're important. There's ones that are, have a priority over others. You should desire those higher gifts. And he goes, and yet, in the face of all those gifts, there's something that's even yet more important. Now, when I stop and think about that, I go, yeah, but what could be better than the really cool spiritual stuff? When I was in college, young college age, I was going to a college group that was very, uh, I'll just say, expressive. They were very much waiting for and looking for and desiring spiritual things. There wasn't a whole heck of a lot of Bible teaching going on. There was a lot of really intense emotional worship being played, music being played, and there was this desire for these spiritual things to take place. They were wanting people to speak in tongues. They were wanting people to fall down. They were wanting people to laugh in the spirit. And there was this sense that I, I went a few times and I was just like, something's missing here. It's not just that there's some chaos and disorder to all of this or that there's an unhealthy priority put on things that are quote-unquote spiritual in nature but don't actually result in anything regarding salvation. And, and so, but yet there's this idea of going, how could there be something better than that really cool spiritual stuff that's sometimes unexplainable and really intense, right? What could be better than that? Well, Paul begins to speak in really uh, poetic, flowery, hyperbolic language and starts to explain what is even better than all of the cool, fun, spiritual stuff that does take place in the church. He says in chapter 13, verse 1, If I speak in the tongues of men and of angels but have not love, I'm a noisy gong or a clanging cymbal. If I have prophetic powers and I understand all mysteries and all knowledge and if I have all faith, so as to remove mountains, but have not love, I'm nothing. And if I give away all I have, and if I deliver up my body to be burned, but have not love, I gain nothing. Paul says, if I'm so spiritually gifted, if I'm so full of the Holy Spirit that I can fill in the blank, that I could be this powerful spiritual individual, he says, I could have all those things, but if I don't at the root, at the core of that behavior or activity, if I'm not loving people, then none of that stuff matters. Nothing matters in the Lord unless I'm actually loving people. That's it. That's what's more excellent. That's better than really cool spiritual stuff taking place. I've seen revivals on TV. I've seen worship sessions on YouTube where there's just crazy stuff happening. That seems pretty cool. And you're telling me love is better than all of those things? And the answer is yes. Love is better than any sign or wonder or mighty working of God's spirit in some sort of manifestation physically or spiritually. Love is greater. And here's why. Take a look at verse 4. 
Paul begins to describe what love looks like. Godly love, Christ-like love, he's, in verse 4 it says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It's not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but it rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, and endures all things. Love never ends. This is why love is more important than anything else we can experience spiritually in the Lord. It's because all of the things that we're told by Paul about divine, godly, Christ-like love toward others is exactly what we need and want for ourselves. If that's how we want to experience love, true love, love that doesn't get angry, isn't resentful, love that isn't proud, love that is primarily the first two things that Paul says. There's a lot of things that he says love is not, but he says there's two things love primarily is. Love is patient and love is kind. That's what we want out of a loving relationship. Let's just be honest. We know we mess up and fail at things. We want someone to be patient with us and go, all right, let's, let's try again. <laughs> we want someone to be kind to us. How many times we, we it, it, with the people that are closest to us, those that we love, whether it's brothers and sisters, husbands and wives, parents with children, the, how is it that the person that we love the most, oftentimes we end up treating the poorest? And we use excuses like, well, I'm just comfortable with that person. I'm being honest with that person. Yeah, but you're being a jerk too. Like, that's not okay. We, we should endeavor and desire to be patient with one another and be kind. Why? Because that's how we want people to treat us. When Jesus issued what, what we call the golden rule, which we teach kids in kindergarten, right? Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. Treat other people the way you want to be treated. Jesus established that and said that rule is actually encompassing all of the law that God has laid out in his word and all of the prophecies speaking about what's to come in God's kingdom. He goes, that encompasses it all. Treat everybody else the way that you want to be treated. And so Paul says, here's what love is, here's what it isn't. And here's why it's so much better than anything else that we could experience spiritually. It's that we have God showing us the example of that love in Jesus Christ, his life, his death, and his resurrection. That's what we want. That's what we should be aware of in how we give and treat other people. Continue on in verse 8 here, 1 Corinthians 13, verse 8. Paul says, love never ends. It's forever. It's eternal. And he says, as for prophecies, they're going to pass away. Prophecy is going to be just for a certain part of human history, the giving of God's word, the church age where we're speaking out God's word to one another. Prophecy is going to pass away. As for tongues, they will cease. There's a purpose for tongues. There was a reason God used that so that it could, so that the gospel could be, could, uh, so that the gospel could be communicated in other languages and other people could understand it. But at a certain point, there's not going to be a need for that. He says, as for knowledge, it will pass away the things that we think we know now. When Jesus shows up, when Jesus returns, 
I think we're all just going to go, oh, we were so far off. We thought we understood as best as we could. We did our best. But Jesus, we just didn't even get the half of it. And so as for knowledge, it's going to pass away. Verse 9, Paul confesses and says what we should all hold close to ourselves. For we know in part, we prophesy in part. But when the perfect comes, the partial will pass away. Meaning Jesus, who is perfect in all ways. When Jesus comes, this experience that we're having here, which we're doing our best to grasp onto and to understand what it means in relationship to the Lord, but we really only have a part of it, a piece of it. We don't have the whole thing yet. He says, when I was a child, I spoke like a child, and I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I gave up childish ways. He says, right now, for now, we see in a mirror dimly. But then when Jesus comes, we're going to see face to face. Now I know in part, but then I shall know fully, even as I have been fully known. And then he says these famous words, so now faith, hope, and love abide, these three. But the greatest of these is love. Paul's talking about a spiritual awakening here. The love of God revealed to us in Jesus Christ. All the other stuff is great. Apostleship is great. Prophecy is great. Speaking in tongues is great. Teaching the Bible is great, necessary, right, good for us to do. But our hope is not placed in good Bible teaching. Our hope eternally is not placed in the function of the church here as it is. How many people we can attract? How many people say, oh boy, you're, you're a neat group of people. Boy, you've got really great worship. Boy, your Bible teacher is really good. Or boy, your people are really uh, you know, in, invested into this church. All that stuff is fine and it's good, but that's not what we put our hope in. What we put our hope in is in the return of Jesus. And when we see Jesus, all of these things that we've been striving for and trying to do well, we're gonna realize we only had them in part. And when Jesus arrives, we're gonna go, oh, that's what it's all about. Jesus truly is everything. And so Paul talks about this spiritual awakening that, we're, that we need to be aware of and, and striving for and trying to, trying to prioritize and organize ourselves even as the body of Christ to go, okay, we know we're not gonna get it fully, but let's really do our best to hear what God has said and let's push toward that. Even if it looks different than what everybody else is doing and everybody else's interpretation of what the church is supposed to look like or how they're supposed to function, let's be the ones who prioritize what God's word says. And let's do our best to push in to that and be that. All the other stuff is great, but here's the deal. Love never ends. So let's be defined by not all the spiritual activity in the church, but the love of Christ. Let's be that and do that. Gordon Fee is a, is a commentator on the Bible and a, and a theology professor, a very, very smart man. And he says, possession of the charismata. Charismata is the word that is used to describe the gifts of the Holy Spirit. It's something that's given by divine power and in and of itself, it's where we get our word charisma. Charismata, charisma. What do we think about when we think of charisma? We think of somebody who's just 
attractive, has a nice smile, has a winsome way with people. And that's what tends to happen when, when we prioritize the gifts of the Holy Spirit. We start to highlight the person who has the gift rather than the purpose of the gift. And, and, and so Gordon Fee would say, possession of the charismata, that gift, is not the sign of the Spirit necessarily. Christian love is the sign of the Holy Spirit in us. Because a person can be charismatic on their own. You can fake it until you make it in a lot of ways. There's a lot of people who, who don't actually have a devotion to Jesus and to who he is and what he has done who can pretend their way through church really well. And that can be viewed as cynical, but the reality is, is that's true. And we live in a culture right now which is based on clicks, likes, entertainment value, attractional value. And so there's a caution and a warning given to us in this. And if we don't base ourselves with our motivation and our purpose as love, then we're missing the whole thing. And so Paul finishes out his statement like we've read. So now faith, hope, and love abide. These three. But the greatest of these is love. Interesting. Faith is where salvation comes from. Our faith through God's grace, that's how we're saved. Isn't salvation important? Mm -hmm. Yeah, it is. But love's even more important. Interesting. Hope. The promise of heaven, eternity with the Lord. Isn't that important for us to tell people that there's something greater coming, that we have something to look forward to? Yeah, that's really important. But Paul says, love's even more important than that. I'm not sure, how can that be? Salvation and eternity, love, is greater than that? Yeah, it is. And here, I'll tell you why. John 3.16, and you know where I'm going. But John 3.16 tells us why love is more important than those two other truths. Faith and hope, salvation, the promise of eternity. Love is greater than those. John 3.16, For God so loved the world that he gave his only Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Why is love more important? How can it be more important than salvation? How can love be more important than eternity? Because love is the root cause of salvation and eternity. It's because of God's love for his creation that he made the way of salvation through Jesus' death and resurrection. It's because of God's love for his creation that he says, I'm going to prepare a place to be with you forever when this world is done. And so love has to be to us the core, the root, the reality of our faith. Receiving God's love for us and then treating others and living in a loving way to prove the presence of the Holy Spirit. My prayer is that we would be a people who love in a way that proves that God is at work our lives individually and as the church as a whole.